0: Today's sermon text is from Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord." who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Before we take a look at this psalm that we just sang and heard Mrs. Payne read for us, we need to bow our heads in prayer and ask him to bring these truths alive in our hearts. God, you invite us to come into your place. And yet, as this psalm reminds us, we are unworthy to do so. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? God, I know many have entered into this room this morning feeling like they don't belong, they don't fit feeling like everything around them is falling apart, wondering if you have any comforts from your home, if you have any good fatherly wisdom, if there's a strong provider in your place. Is there someone to give us the comforts our hearts long for? Maybe their home life right now is tumultuous, and they wonder, can I come into your place, God? Show us, show us, Father, the way in by your word. Show us, Christ, that he is worthy and able to bring us into the comforts of your your home. Remind us, God, that one day this whole world will be filled with your presence, that we don't need to long for home. We will be home because you will be with us everywhere. Give us that comfort through your word this morning by the power of Christ whose name purchases us access to your throne. Amen. After securing the surrender of the British Army at the Battle of Yorktown, effectively ending the Revolutionary War, the Americans worked diligently to establish their own identity as a new nation. They wrapped up some lingering military details and sent a delegation to Europe to sign a treaty ending the conflict. And then with that struggle behind them, their eyes forward on what we can become together, they determined to make George Washington their new king. The army even tried to stage an uprising that would overthrow Congress and install him as their permanent leader. But all George Washington wanted was to go home. He was done with the fight and he wanted to go home to his wife. After reasoning with the military leaders to pull them back from their treasonous passions, he made his way to Congress in order to resign, declaring, having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. As Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. After 10 years of debate and politics and fighting a bloody war against tyrants, George Washington just wanted to go home. He and his wife Martha had this beautiful land, this property where they they farmed together. They enjoyed intimate love. They rested in God's bounty. They raised their children. They, they shared of their overflow with their neighbors. The entire reason he fought the war was so he could be left alone at home to love others. It was this hope of rest at home that kept him going throughout the war. There's no place like home. When you know where your home is, you can leave it in confidence, knowing that rest is waiting for you after the battle. When you know where your home is, you can drive out into the wilderness and face great risks, knowing you will receive rest and recovery when you return. When you know where your home is, as life's trials and temptations try to pull you farther away, you know at any time you can call home to pull you back. Psalm 15 reminds us of where our most secure home is. And it calls us to find an unshakable home in the blamelessness of Christ. Many of you know what it's like to have comforting parents to go home to. Or a husband's strong arms to fall into. Or a wife's restoring touch to relax in. A nice home to find security in. Others of you only dream what that would be like knowing how quickly things can fall apart when you don't have home to call upon. But all these things are meant only to point us to the greater home that we have with our Heavenly Father, who invites us to find an unshakable home in the blamelessness of Christ. The way David organized this psalm falls in three parts. It's just a short psalm but there's still three parts here. Verse one introduces us to a question of belonging. Who is allowed in God's house? Who may come in? Second, verses two through the beginning of verse five answer, give us an answer of kinship. Whoever has inherited God's blamelessness can call God's place home. And finally, the last line in verse 5 gives a promise of peace. If your blamelessness gives you a home with God, nothing in this life will shake you. You always have a father to call upon, a husband to fall into, a comforter to find rest in, a home to return to. So let's seek that comfort together. Starting in verse 1 with this question of belonging. David cries out, right in front of the temple. Oh, Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the song, as he sings it in front of the temple, is inviting all the other worshipers, the congregation, to gather with him and think about who would even be allowed to come near. It's evoking all these images of Eden and Sinai, And the tabernacle, this temple is representative of all the places where God in history has made his presence known. And as the congregation approaches the temple up on the mountain in Jerusalem, this song invites the worshiper to do some self-examination. As you approach God's residence, are you fit to come near? Do you have the qualifications to come into his presence? Are you part of the family that's allowed in his house? This word sojourn already admits there's a little bit of a problem. Something's gone wrong. The word means wanderer, wandering. It's referring to people who have no home. And they're coming to God's house because they want that to be their home. It's evoking memories of the Exodus when Israel escaped from Egypt and they were wandering around the wilderness living in tents for 40 years. They had no place to call home. Sojourning, this wandering far from home is a theme throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve were kicked out of their home because of their sin. Abraham was called out of his home in Ur to go to find an unknown home in the land of Canaan. Israel was taken away from their homes in the exile to live in Babylon. Peter even calls Christians today wanderers, sojourners, awaiting our heavenly home. No matter what kind of home life you have right now, theres you are a wanderer. This world is not your home. You are sojourning into your home in the next life. Yet, God has been working throughout all of history to not only give us a home, but he has made a way, he's entered into our wandering. This is what the Israelites experienced. God came out of his place to be with them in the wilderness. He made a tent so that he could live with them there and invite them and welcome them back to his home. God is so hospitable. He brings his hospitality outside to where the people are wandering and says, come. So the goal of this psalm is to help the people see what God has done and help them live a hospitable life, themse- life themselves. They were commanded to be a hospitable people who care for one another, who take good care of the poor and the needy, generous for their needs to invite the wanderer and the foreigner. Come, you have a place to rest with me. Because that's what God did for his people. So this psalm is so much more than simply letting a person into the temple. The temple and the tabernacle, Sinai, Eden, were all shadows pointing to a greater reality of God coming to meet with his wanderers throughout the earth and making a home for them in his presence. The goal of this psalm is to give you wisdom to walk a life of holiness so that you can live in God's presence wherever you go on this planet because God intended for the whole earth to be his dwelling place with people. That's what Jesus was saying to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jews and Samaritans would have this argument over, where's the right place to worship? On Mount Moriah in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim in Samaria? Jesus replied, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The time's coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So, does God live in Jerusalem or Samaria? You're missing the point. Jews were right, yes, to worship, he explained, God on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. That's where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. That's where David bought the land to build a permanent temple. That's where the prophets always spoke of the Messiah coming and gathering the nations to himself on that mountain. But that's not where God's presence was limited. It was to be in a new Eden-like place where God's people found holiness, righteousness, rest. They were equipped with God's wisdom and then sent out to fill the earth with his presence. But nobody could even come there. The righteous demands of a holy God made ascent accessing this home impossible. Like Moses at Sinai, he had to take his sandals off. You can't just waltz right into God's house. When Moses met with God, the mountain quaked. The people were so afraid, they didn't even want to come near to the foot of the mountain for fear that they would die. Mercifully, God gave this system of sacrifices so that through a very narrow representation of people, under just the right circumstances, through carefully applied rituals, we could have this tiny limited access to God. It's not a very comforting home. You stand outside trembling. I want peace. But the problem is, that's presented in these questions is, who is able to worship him in such spirit and truth? Who is allowed on this mountain, let alone God's presence anywhere? If we're not allowed in the temple, who would be allowed anywhere in his redeemed earth? Verses two through five are giving us an answer of kinship. Only the person who has inherited God's wisdom, who is perfectly pure in his heart, can enter God's home. Read those again with me. He who walks blamelessly, and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Tell me more, David. Well, he's one who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, and takes up, not nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose his eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So, verse two is kind of just the general summary statement of this kind of person. He's blameless, he's righteous, he has truth all the way into his heart. He's perfect, he must be blameless. So with that kind of answer, maybe someone is thinking, I know I'm not blameless, but perhaps he's going to give me a list of things that if I do these things, then I can become blameless. Maybe a fresh reminder of the Ten Commandments. Tell me how to become perfect, and then I can go into God's house. But that's not what's happening here. This isn't really a list of things to do or not do. The psalm is giving us wisdom. The psalter is more part of the wisdom collection, not a law book giving precise instruction and promises of reward for obedience. It's trying to promote right living through God's wisdom, going deep into the heart to the kind of person you are. Psalm 15 is actually set in contrast to Psalm 14, where we talked last week about the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But here in this psalm, it highlights the wise sage who has in his heart truth, God's truth. It's not just saying, do these things and then you'll be right and welcomed in. It's more of a, this is the kind of person who belongs in God's household. It's just deeper than black and white commands and step-by-step instructions. So often people come to me looking for counsel and with their problem, I need help with this thing. What should I do? They're expecting some set of things for them to go through. If they do those things, the problem will be fixed. Then they'll be happy. Everything will be taken care of. Or so many people want sermons that say, give me, tell me what this says I should do. So when I go out of this place, then I will know what God wants of me. I'll do that thing and then I'll be satisfied and he'll be pleased with me. And that's not how this works. God actually has done that before in order to show that it doesn't work. He gave 613 very specific commands to the Israelites. They read them, they heard them, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the next day they were worshiping idols. They couldn't do it. Their hearts didn't have God's truth, his wisdom inside to guide them in every situation. Jesus spoke like this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. He would say things like, you have heard it said, and then explain an Old Testament law and how they've applied it. And then he'd go further. But I say to you, he's not making up new laws. He's trying to say the whole point of that law was to show you that they demand more than external obedience, but internal wisdom and purity. So don't just avoid adultery. Don't even entertain lustful thoughts. You're not righteous because you've never murdered anyone. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler, right? No, Jesus says, don't even have hatred in your heart. Don't try to take justice upon yourself, but be a person who spreads mercy and peacemaking. This psalm's wisdom is speaking of that person who doesn't just do the right thing, but has the heart of someone who wants to promote flourishing in their community. That's what the law was all about. As Jesus explained in Matthew 22, all of the law and the prophets point to this, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul and strength. And then the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, basically, The law was to show you how to love God and out of that relationship with God, you will have the wisdom to navigate all the other relationships in your life. That's what this psalm is trying to accomplish. It's kind of asking who is hospitable just like God? Who has the truth in his heart? Who has the truth as part of his nature like God? Like you've just inherited it. You are just like him. And so the next three verses are explaining this wisdom and character of a member of God's household. Verse 3 emphasizes his posture towards all others around him. Generally, he promotes the well-being of his neighbors. Who are his neighbors? Jesus had to explain that again, too, because they didn't understand in Luke Chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. A neighbor is someone God brings into your life. Not necessarily someone that lives next door to you or someone that's kind of like you and you're on the same Facebook group. Your neighbor is the person God brought into your life. The parallelism of these lines actually helps explain that a little farther. The next line says the word friend. It doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. The word there simply means someone who's close to you. Not emotionally close, but literally someone that God brought into your life, near you. So all these lines in verse 3, with their negative statements, are are describing a person who is concerned about protecting the well-being and reputation of others. He's not someone who's always doubting others, questioning their motives, trying to really get beneath, underneath what he's really thinking, the real reason he did that. This guy is always giving the benefit of the doubt and encouraging others to do so as well. But he's not naive. Verse 4 explains that he's keenly aware of the difference between good and evil. In his eyes, he can see when someone does wicked things when they act corruptly, and he's not afraid to call it out. Such vileness demands a response, and this wise man is able to do so for the love of his neighbors. He wants to promote flourishing among his neighbors. He's got to call out this wickedness, this vileness, and get rid of it. But he's not seeking out trouble. He's not looking behind everything and under every bush, turning over every rock, Hey, what are you up to? Why? Do, that doesn't seem right. What do, you, what do you think you're doing over there? Are you the one that's causing the trouble around here? This guy's concerned primarily with his own relationship with God and letting that be a blessing towards others. As verse 3 had said, he's careful not to slander or gossip. He's very cautious to not be a person that's caught up in painting negative pictures of others. Just let their deeds go before them. Call it out if necessary. But conversely, when he sees someone doing something that shows he fears Yahweh, he's quick to praise and honor that person. One of the best ways to promote right behavior in your home or in your community is to praise someone when they are doing something right. We can encourage one another towards greater sanctification. Even if we're just immersed in all kinds of frustrating behavior, just latch on to that one little thing and say, Oh, well done. Wow, praise God for that. Good job, my son. You couldn't have done that without God's help. Keep leaning into that. Even when we just see the small amounts of turning from sin and genuine faith to God, we should be people who honor that. This wise member of God's household is so natural at doing such things. The last line of verse 4 says that this person is even so concerned about the well-being of other people that he keeps his word keeps his commitments, even if it causes him harm. If he has promised to do something, he'll follow through, even if it costs him greatly. He won't change his mind and ask to renegotiate the terms, because, you know, things change. The world changed. We're just not the same people we once were. Not this guy. He doesn't change. He's willing to bear the consequences in order to be honorable towards others. And finally, in verse 5, we see the, this relationship he has for the poor, with the poor and needy. Generally, this guy is always seeking the good of others, but he goes beyond that. Not just the people he knows and likes, but to help those who are caught up in the raging rapids of life. He's always focused on what he can give. How he can be a blessing, not how he can receive what he can get out of things. If someone comes to him asking for a loan, he's not going to charge them interest just so he can get a little bit of profit out of it. He wants to help them get back on their feet. So he's going to help without any desire to gain something for himself. He's not going to take a bribe, the second line says, and put an innocent person at risk. Because I might gain favor with somebody else who has money. God's people will have no part of such arrangements. They will not favor the rich nor the poor. They will not show partiality to anybody. They care about truth and righteousness, verse 2 had said. This is a person of extremely high character. It's obvious to everyone in the community that this guy is always working for the good of others. Blameless. Not a single person can point out a thing wrong with this guy. Not because the law tells him what to do, but because God's wisdom dwells right down in the deepest parts of his heart. And that's what guides him to be good toward others. Whoever lives like this has the promise of peace in this final line of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. You have a home that will not ever be shaken. You can always come back to. As we saw, these things aren't simply things that you can just do and then check off on a list so that you can receive the pride. You don't show up at God's house saying, I've done all the things, can I come in now? The person who works out God's wisdom in this life will never be moved. They know they have a place with him. That word moved means shaken. The person who lives this blamelessly will never be shaken. That's not so much a promise that hard things won't ever come your way, that if you are wise, life will go well for you all the time. Nothing is going to shake you. It suggests more That when the world or Satan tries tries to shake you, throwing storms into your life, you will remain standing. You have built your house upon the rock. You're going to face many adversities, but you won't fall as the wicked will. You won't cave to pressure. You won't compromise. You won't despair. You won't turn from God back into destructive folly. Ultimately, you won't be condemned. The whole world is crumbling around you, but God's wisdom sustains you. The whole world is promoting death, but through you, God will bring life that overcomes the darkness. Or as we began this message, when you find yourself in trouble, you always have a father to call upon to bring you home. When you fear the threats of this crazy world around you, you have a strong husband to keep you safe when you're exhausted from laboring in this wilderness, you have a soft comforter to give you rest. This is the promise for all of you who are perfectly upright and completely hold truth in your heart. So raise your hand if that describes you. Which of you can say, Psalm 15 is a biography of my life. Wow, how did David know about me? None of us. That's why we feel so much pain in this world, so much wandering. We feel like we don't have a home to go to. Every relationship is so hard. We all long for the comforts of God's home and for those, those comforts to permeate our lives. But none of us in our natural state are welcome into his home. None of us are born members of his family, and there's no amount of good we can do to earn our way into his family. No stranger could just show up at my door, knock on the door, and say really nice things about me. Go mow my lawn and after spending hours mowing my lawn, come in, walk through the door, open the fridge, crack a cold beverage, put his feet up on my couch and say, hey, thanks for the hospitality. Because of our sin, we are more than just strangers to God. We are enemies. We are sojourners who long to come in, but our folly is such a destructive threat to the peace he keeps in his home. We can't come in. So, how can God be hospitable to us, sojourners, in our times of need, and let us in even though our sin makes us his natural enemy? That's exactly the dilemma that Jesus has come to solve. Jesus is the only man ever born, only person who could claim this is my biography. David was actually looking forward, talking about me. He's the only one who can claim true membership to God's household. He can walk in and out as he pleases and everyone at the door says, hey, come on in, good to see you. He can come into God's tent. He can waltz right in to the holy mountain. But he has come with wisdom, out of God's place in order to make a way for us to bring us back in with him. He's the only one at the blameless heart. He has always used his tongue to speak well, to bring life in others. He calls out sin when it causes destruction and he is quick to praise faith when it is genuine. Most importantly, he swore an oath to the Father. To bring lost sinners home, even at a great cost to himself, when it caused him harm. He received mockery and scorn. He dropped blood from his brow and his side. He hung cursed on a cross and remained unchanged in his resolve until he lay defeated in death. This is the wisdom of God at work to save sinners a wisdom sufficient to pay for all of our sin and folly. Yet, just as this final line promised, even though Satan tried to throw everything he could his way, tried to shake him to the point of even burying him in the tomb, Jesus could not be shaken. God raised him from the dead. Jesus emerged from the grave as a guarantee himself. That all who call upon his name can freely walk into God's home. Can call God Father. The curtain separating sinners from God's holy hill has been torn. In Christ, you have an unshakable home as a member of God's household. You can just walk right in boldly, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And then when you come in, you can sit at his feet as his little children and he teaches you his wisdom. He feeds you his nourishment. He comforts you in in your pain. He equips you to go back out and do his work. Friends, this is why we gather every single week in this place. Not because this building is God's home. God destroyed the temple To show that the building is not where he dwells. He dwelt in Christ in Jerusalem. And from that place, he is spreading his home to the ends of the earth through his people. So that wherever we gather, wherever those who gather together in the name of Christ, we are his dwelling place. Whenever we gather, he comforts us that we are his. And he gives us wisdom to go back out and live to promote life among our neighbors. It's coming into his home that we grow in wisdom and then we go out to apply that wisdom in the world. So the question that you have to ask yourself is the same question David asked his people. Do you belong here? Have you been made a member of God's household? Nobody is born a child of God. Just because your parents drag you here doesn't make you welcome in God's home. There's nothing you can do to become a child of God. You are only welcome in God's place when you humble yourself to admit, I am a lost, rebellious orphan asking for mercy from the master of the house to take me in and be my father in Christ. Then you become an adopted child of God, welcomed into his home, promised an eternal inheritance. This is true no matter what stage of life you are in or what follies may have brought destruction in your life. There's no saying, well, I've sinned too much, so I can't come in. You don't know what my life is like. There's no arguing that you're too old or too smart or too important to start As a child in the church. When you are in Christ, you are a childlike member of the family no matter what identity you brought in from out there. What matters now is your identity in Christ as a brother or sister of this household. Your relationships or lack of relationships with other people don't define your role in this family. But only your relationship with Christ and his father. If you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you've been washed, made holy, given his wisdom, welcomed into God's unshakable home in the blamelessness of Christ. And now you have the responsibility to your family to get to work with God's wisdom, promoting life among your neighbors, the closest to you, starting with one another and then extending that out into the wilderness to invite others in through Christ. If you are secure and unshakable in Christ, you will, by the new nature of God's Spirit in you, begin to display, overflow this Psalm 15 character towards others. But if you doubt God's fatherly love for you, if you doubt the power of Christ's death and resurrection to overcome any impossible circumstance. All those things will cause you to be shaken and distract you from living this hospitable character. You'll suddenly find yourself more concerned about why more isn't being done for you. Why you'll be thinking about why people like you don't get more attention or more support. You'll question why you don't get to have the thing, the one thing you know would make you happier, to give you peace. But you already have all you need in the blamelessness of Christ to find an unshakable home with God among his people. If today you find yourself longing in some way for the comforts of a good home, Dwell in your heart on the blamelessness of Christ and his promise to bring you into his home. Let Christ be your unshakable confidence that soon you will be with him in the best home forever. And you've been given a family right here to help you endure until that day. Let's pray. God, put this truth down deep in us that Christ is a solid rock. That all the chaos of life, the shaking, the broken relationships, the frustrating marriages or children or lack of marriage or children or the annoying boss or the financial problems, all those things remind us that we are not home. But give us unshakable confidence that we do have a home. And we will be there soon. And we have flavors of it, just small samples of it today when we gather together with your people. Comfort hearts this morning with the certainty that Christ's death and resurrection will bring us home. Amen.